Welcome to the VHIA podcast. My name is Emma Scott, Senior Workplace Relations Consultant. Joined with me today is Brie Marinia, Workplace Relations Consultant. Hi, Brie. Hi, Emma. So I think it may be one of our final podcasts in the series of implementation for allied health professionals today. So we have got, I think, three more clauses that we're working through. And so we have three more beautiful clues. So for the first one we have got on there, it might be quite obvious, but there is a picture. Can you describe what that is? Yeah. So it's a picture of what looks like a calendar and somebody has written holiday um under Thursday and they've underlined it in highlight so someone is looking forward very much to a holiday a one-day holiday on Thursday according to this picture um so you're right I think it is pretty obvious uh, that this one is probably going to be about annual leave you couldn't be more right that okay. is correct Good. so then, one down yep one down two more to go so the next one, we actually have something different I don't think we've done for the Allied Health Implementation Series is a verbal audio cue. So we'll just listen to that now. When you put your arms around me, I get a fever that's so hard to bear. You give me fever. When you kiss me, fever, when you hold okay. me tight. Okay, so from that short audio clip, can you guess what the next clause is? I think this one's a little bit trickier. Um, the song was talking about having a fever. So the only thing I can think of for that would be uh, being sick and potentially needing to take sick leave. Oh, second one correct again. Oh, two out of two. I need to make these harder for you next time. <laughs> Running out of clues, I think. <laughs> yeah. And then the next one is... A third clue. Can you describe what that is? Uh, so that looks like a man performing a deadlift, but mm -hmm. instead of um, weights on the end of his barbell, he's got some multicolored files or binders. <laughs> yeah. Um, and what do you think his performance like is? What? How would you judge that? Uh, he looks very strong. Okay. Yeah. Very fit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> potentially and he's lifting something that is work related um that's a binder so if you put all that together i think we're going to talk about fitness for work three out of three very very good three definitely i don't think i've ever to... gotten three out of three before so definitely need um, to up the um the hardness on uh, those yeah, ones the for next time <laughs> for sure so now that we've disclosed those, um, essentially what those things have in common is that we're going to go through some of the things that are different to what's in the other sector agreements. So I think the first clause we're talking about is annual leave. Yeah, that's correct. So the most important change for employers to note is the base entitlement to annual leave has increased by one week or 38 hours, meaning employees are entitled to five weeks, which equates to 190 hours of annual leave per year of service. And so when, when did the increase take effect? So the increase took effect from the signing of the Heads of Agreement, which was the 7th of July 2022, which means there's a back pay um, component where employers will need to credit leave um, between that date and the 
commencement of the agreement. Yeah. And so what about the leave load capping? Um, has it has that been impacted? This. Yeah, so the capping has increased. So the 17.5% leave loading is payable on five weeks now, when previously it was four weeks. Mm-hmm. And what was the next main change to the annual leave clause? So a process has been inserted at subclause 59.3F for employers to deal with high demand holiday periods. So does that actually differ to the nurses and midwives agreement? No, so members will already be familiar with a similar process that was inserted in the nurses and midwives, um, but the process does remain the same in that an employer is required to develop and publish requirements for a high demand holiday period. So an employer might develop new requirements for allied health professionals, or they can simply apply the same requirements that they've already got in place for nurses, provided the high demand periods are the same. Mm-hmm. So although, pro- although the process is the same, I think there's some drafting that talks about referring to existing subclauses in the existing AHP agreement. Yeah, so the entitlement is the same, the drafting does slightly differ. So the AHP clause just clarifies that Although the written requirement must identify the date by which a request for annual leave should be submitted to the employer, an employer can't unreasonably refuse requests even if they're submitted after this date. And although the written requirement must identify the date by which the employer will notify the employee in writing that the annual leave request is approved or not, this still must be as soon as possible, but no later than four weeks after the application has been made. Mm-hmm. And so what was the final change in the annual leave clause that was made? So subclause 59.3c has been amended to state that once annual leave has been granted by the employer, it will only be revoked by mutual agreement, which may be at the request of the employee, save that the employer will not unreasonably refuse a request by an employee to revoke the granting of leave. So is there an example that you can provide on this? Yep, so an employee might have, for example, booked um, a period of leave to go on a holiday, but due to unforeseen circumstances, um, unforeseen circumstances require the employee to cancel their holiday and they then ask their employer to cancel their annual leave. But an employer might have already, say, provided leave cover for those hours, um, given them to another employee, and the employee wanting to revoke their leave is also um, has an excess leave balance, in which case it might be reasonable for the employer to refuse revoking that leave. And so then moving on to the next clause 62, um, personal carers leave, what's the amendments that have been made there? So the first main change is um, an insertion of a provision at subclause 62.3a, which outlines employers will not adopt systems or practices intended to discourage the legitimate use of personal leave by employees, such as unreasonably questioning employees about their use of personal or carers' leave. Mm-hmm. And so what was the rationale behind inserting um, such a provision? So this clause was inserted to discourage any unreasonable practices or questions. So Barpa did raise one example in bargaining where an employer Um, implemented a practice of holding wellness interviews each and every time an employee took personal leave um, and employees felt the practice discouraged taking the leave for genuine genuine reasons. So does the provision actually limit the rights of employers to inquire about an employee taking personal leave? Not generally. So employers can still investigate um, alleged illegitimate use of personal leave or they can utilise the fitness for work provisions under the agreement if they do have genuine concerns about an employee's ability to perform the inherent requirements of their role. 
And so the next couple of changes relate to the portability of personal leave. What what are they? Yeah, that's right. So previously, the agreement was a little bit ambiguous. It did define what the allowable period of absence was in relation to the portability of personal leave, but it didn't actually state how that allowable period applied in relation to the employee having their personal leave credited from a previous employer. So now subclause 62.7b just clarifies that the gap between employment cannot extend beyond the allowable period of absence. So the subclause states where an employee commences employment with an or another employer before the end of the allowable period of absence, the employer will credit the employee's accumulated personal leave from the previous employer to the employee in their new employment. And what's the final change in that personal leave clause? Yeah, so a new provision has been inserted at subclause 62.7d, which clarifies an employee can still have their personal leave credit transferred where they get a new permanent job at another employer, but they remain engaged as a casual or on the casual bank with their original employer. Great. And then so the last clause is clause 64, fitness for work. Yeah, that's right. So there's been a few amendments to the fitness for work clause. Um, a couple of them were just simple clarifications, such as outlining the clause doesn't apply to injuries subject to active work cover claims, or that nothing in this clause p- permits an employer to act contrary to the Health Records Act. Um, however, there were a few changes that we're going to discuss a little bit more in depth. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the first change relates to the steps the employer must take when the fitness for work process is triggered. What's the amendment there? Yeah, that's right. So the fitness for work clause is triggered where an employee's manager forms a reasonable belief that an employee is unfit to perform their duties. And the clause defines reasonable belief as a belief that a reasonable person would hold based on sufficient evidence that supports the conclusion on the balance of probabilities. Now, subclause 64.2D has just been slightly amended to clarify that the employer will take all reasonable steps to give the employee an opportunity to address any concerns which are the subject of the reasonable belief. So that just really um, reiterates that the fitness for work process is centred on addressing concerns about the employee's fitness for work based on sufficient evidence, not just an arbitrary concern, essentially. Yeah, that's right. So to that point, um, subclause 64.8 also has been amended to outline that the employer must only seek information regarding the employee's capacity to work including from any medical practitioner an employee attends and will not request any confidential medical information. So it's not about knowing what the exact illness or injury is, but rather the employee's capacity to do their duties and what is impacted having regard to whatever illness or injury it is that they have. So the next change relates to the second step in the fitness for work process, where after discussions the employee um, the employer might continue to have a reasonable belief that someone's unfit to perform their duties? Yeah, so the next stage of the process involves the employer seeking a report from the employee's treating medical practitioner. And subclause 64.3a has been amended to outline that this report is provided by the treating medical practitioner via the employee. So in other words, the employer doesn't contact the employee's treating medical practitioner directly but provides the employee with the necessary information so that their treating medical practitioner can give the employee a report that addresses the employer's concerns. So the next step relates to um, the final process in there, which is actually attending an independent medical examiner. 
Yeah, that's right. So there's a new sub-clause um, 64.4, which has been inserted, and it outlines the process regarding the attendance at an IME, specifically inserting an opportunity for an employee to raise concerns of impartiality. So that's done to increase the transparency and efficiency of the IME process. So what, what actually is that? Yes, yeah, so um, you'll see on screen um, a summary of the new process. So first, an employer must provide the employee with the name of the proposed IME. Then if the employee has concerns regarding impartiality of that proposed IME within three business days or reasonable longer period um, to allow the employee to, say, consult with their treating medical practitioner, the employee will provide reasonings for their concerns and may provide up to three alternative IMEs for consideration by the employer. Uh, the employer must consider this information that's provided by the employee, and they can't unreasonably refuse to agree to send the employee to one of those alternative IMEs. Uh, and when they do so, they must include the reasons for deciding on a particular IME. Mm. Uh, so were there any other changes to the clause? Yeah, finally, um, some new provisions have been added, which outlines that an employee may supplement the material to be provided to the IME, such as material outlining any special needs, such as an interpreter or disabled access, or um, they might supplement it with relevant um, radiographic films or test results, such as x-rays or MRIs, CTs, ultrasounds, etc., um, that are relevant to the employee's condition. And they can also request to meet with the employer to consult about the material that the employer proposes to provide to the to the IME, uh, and the employee's representative may attend this meeting and represent the employee. So this might result in information being omitted that um, was originally in that material going to the IME, but um, through that consultation process, um, it's agreed that that's not relevant to that particular employee's role, so it shouldn't be considered by the IME. Uh, so I think that might be all of the changes. So thanks for taking um, us through those. Thanks, Emma.